there's a common list of injuries for each animal. Well, my expertise is in the orthopedic side of things. And for cats, some of the most common issues are wrists and elbows and knees and hips. Join us as we chat to amazing cat explorers and experts. Learn from them, listen to their war stories, celebrate their wins, and laugh at the funny moments that have been a part of their journey. Welcome to the Cat Explorer Podcast. I'm Asara. And I'm Daniel. We're going to be learning so much during this episode, so we would love to hear what you have learned. Take a screenshot of your phone, share it to your Instagram stories, tag us at catexplorer.community and our guest at Animal Rehab Clinic. That is Animal Rehab, K-L-I-N-I-K, and share what you learned. Maybe we'll pick up something that we've missed. One thing I've come to learn about Lumos is that he's a social cat. You've probably heard him in the background of the Cat Explorer podcast because he's always in the middle of everything. For a long time, I just thought this was a Lumos quirk. But since learning about Lumos's DNA in his Bayes Paws DNA test, we've learned a bit more about his sociable nature. Turns out, Lumos has a lot of DNA that matches up with Russian blues. And an interesting fact about Russian blues is that they remember their favorite visitors, even if they don't visit often, which we've realized Lumos actually does. We've been adjusting Lumos's enrichment in line with his personality traits, which were highlighted in his Bayes Paws report. So since it's currently so hot in Australia and smoky from the bushfires, we really haven't been able to go cat exploring. But now we know that Lumos has his favourite visitors, and we're catching up with them at home so that Lumos can spend time with him, and it's made him much happier. On top of that, Lumos's Bayes Paws results highlighted that he has a higher risk of getting diabetes, so we're making an extra effort to manage his food consumption. Bayes Paws are always improving their test results and will be adding your cat's health markers in the future too. For example, they'll be able to tell you if your cat has the health marker for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or polycystic kidney disease, and this will help you prepare accordingly. Your kitty's Bayes Paws report is updated as they gather more information over time. Bayes Paws have kindly given Cat Explorer podcast listeners $15 off their very own cat DNA kit. Just use the code catexplorer15 at bayespaws.com. That's catexplorer15, one word, at bayespaws.com. Before we start our chat with Matt, we've come to a realization this week. We've previously used some Aussie slang on the podcast, and while we try to avoid doing so, sometimes it just pops out. And we're aware that those phrases may not mean anything to our listeners around the world. So today we'll define a few of the things that are said in this episode so that it makes sense when you're listening. While making this list, we've realized that Aussies love shortening words like post-op, which means post-operative, physio, which means physiotherapist, rehab, which means rehabilitation, fella, which means fellow or a guy, footy, which means football. And in Australia, that's a form of Aussie football, not soccer. And another term you'll hear in this episode is chugging along, which means to go along slowly. These are the Aussie terms and phrases we picked up. But if there's anything else that we say that doesn't make sense to you, please feel free to reach out to us on social media or send us an email at heythere@catexplorer.co, and we'll explain what they mean. It's quite normal for us to see a physiotherapist or a chiropractor or an osteopath when parts of our body get injured. It's just what we do to make sure we continue to do all the physical activities that we love. But we sometimes forget that our kitties can get injured too. After all, cat exploring can cause stress on their bodies too. And a certain degree, our cats are like athletes. 
Dr. Matt Breeze is a chiropractor and co-founder of the Animal Rehab Clinic, where they provide animal rehabilitation solutions for pets who are recovering from surgery or other musculoskeletal conditions. We actually just met Matt a day before recording the last episode of Season 3, where we spoke to Wiley's mums about her rehabilitation after a fall. Matt was exhibiting at a pet show, and we were so excited to see some videos of just how animals were treated in his clinic, particularly as Wiley's story was fresh in our minds. Today, we're going to chat to Matt about how cats go through physical rehab, the process, and what we can do to make sure that our cats are fit and healthy. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to chat to you. So what are the most common types of injuries that you see in cats and dogs? Well, we've had quite a big mix. Um, A lot of post-operative stuff we'll see. It's, It's a weird healthcare paradigm with animals that with people, if you have a little bit of a sore back, you might go and find a chiro or an osteo or see your GP or take some pain medications. And you'll do that before you start walking funny or before you need an operation. With animals, we were hoping that would be the contingent of the animal population we would see. But as it turns out, we're seeing a lot of things that vets either know that there's a big musculoskeletal problem wrong, but they're not ready for surgery or they're not an appropriate case for surgery, or they've just had surgery, something orthopedic. So replacements, removals, cruciate repairs, um, osteoarthritic trimming. So we're seeing a lot more of the complex cases rather than just a simple bit of lameness, although we do see a bit of a range of everything. That's really interesting. So like cats are pretty good at hiding their pain. Like we've had situations with our cat, Noxie, who um, she's cut her foot and it's taken me a while to just be like, hey, that's actually bleeding. Like she's, and we never really know how she's done it, somehow done it inside the house. But but she doesn't show her pain from that. Do you have any recommendations on how we can tell if our cat might have any of those injuries or is it something that's just really obvious? Definitely not really obvious. It's really, really obvious. I've got a theory and I'm sure the behaviourists can correct me on this, which is totally fine. I feel like animals try and minimise their pain because if they're the weakest in their pack or they're the weakest animal, they become prey or they you know, get euthanised by the rest of their peer group. So I think hiding pain until it's pretty severe is a very normal um, response in animals. Well, common response. It shouldn't be normal. Dogs are the same. My dog is missing her foot and you can barely tell that she's in pain until you give it a really good poke and she's only vulnerable around me. So she shows it. But a lot of the common signs will be slight lameness, which lameness is means they're walking funny. It could be from a million different reasons, but that's just a generic term. Changes in behavior, loss of appetite. They might get a bit more aggressive and instead of running away because they can't because they're uncomfortable, they might nip, they might overgroom an area, they might undergroom an area. Huge range of stuff. It really comes down to knowing your animal, how they generally behave and noticing a change in behavior. And when you see a change, you sort of think, why? And if you know some basic musculoskeletal stuff, you can go through and kind of figure it out, wiggle their arms and legs and spine and head and neck around and see how they respond. So what's usually the first thing you would do when you have an injured cat or dog that comes into your clinic? Well, it depends. It's it's very similar to when you see a human practitioner, if anyone's seen a chiro or a physio or an osteopath or anything like that. We'll get as much data as we can through the phone call. Um, so we know, you know they're looking for post-operative rehab from a CCL injury um, or a ligament repair, in which case we know exactly where to look and what we're looking for. The tricky ones are when a vet sends us a referral and says, hey, here's this particular animal, don't know what's wrong with it. I think it's the front leg or the back leg or I think it's the back. And we've got to go through and try, <laughs> try and do a lot of um, testing to figure it out. So we'll sit down our first appointment goes for 60 or 90 minutes. We'll go sit down, take a big history, ask everything about the animal, how old it is, what it's used for, if it's a pet or an athletic animal, 
all its medical history, hopefully, and usually the vet has sent all of their notes over so we can have a read through those before we start. They send x-rays across. So we do a big history, do an orthopedic examination, which starts with the acronyms like look, move, feel. So you look at them, see if there's anything that's obviously asymmetrical, watch them walk, um, move them around. So you get them to do active movement where they'll like sit, stand, shape, lift, turn their head side to side, following treats. We've got a treadmill that they can walk on, which I'll talk you through a bit later. We'll go through test their muscles, bones, joints, nerves, and see what's either asymmetrical or what's obviously wrong with them. And once we start to build up a whole lot of data, it becomes a little bit more obvious what the problem is or where we need to look a bit more. So it's like diagnosing like any other patient, whether it's human or cat like or dog, it's just diagnosing what's wrong with them and sort of going through the various tests and observations that you would go through. Huh, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what you have to do. You can't come up with a reasonable treatment protocol until you know what's going on. The only difference is that our animals can't talk to us, so it's a lot of watching, I imagine, and stuff like that. Is, do you ever... To give people a bit of context, Lumos, our cat, our male cat, he does not like the vet. He doesn't like getting like, he loves getting cuddles normally, but if it's something to do with treatment, he hates getting poked and prodded and things like that. Do you find that animals are resistive to you when you're doing all those kind of tests? Yes and no. Um, Their response to how you test them is good information to use in itself. If they're particularly resistant to getting touched a particular way or you can see that the way their owner's handling them is outside of what they would say is normal, there's a lot of good information that can use in that. Some dogs we've worked with, because they, they might have like an arthritic elbow and we can go through and manage it and stop it getting worse and give them a better quality of life, but they just hate being touched by a stranger the whole time. So you've got to get the owner to sit there and it sits on their lap and the cats often like to stay in their transport carry bag sort of things and you can just work with them in there once you know what's going on but we put a lot of effort into creating sort of safe controlled spaces in our clinic that are quiet they've got certain um, aromatherapy kind of devices to calm them down we can dim the lights we keep all the animals separated and something that we really tried to do when we built our practice was to make it feel very unvetty vets use certain cleaning products that animals can smell it's always stainless steel it's very clinical it's like the difference from a human walking into a hospital or walking into a physiotherapy clinic. We've got a, a gym exercise area with gym mats on the floor and fit balls and TheraTube and all this cool stuff. And our treatment room's got a normal treatment table that you might have that we've kind of changed a little bit from a human practice, wooden floorboards. It's, it's a very different environment. So visually through the nose and in the ears, our clinic is very different to a vet. So a lot of the time we don't see the resistance Um from the animals that we might expect because the owners will often put it will put it in their notes when they book in hates the vet scared of other animals you come with all these warnings and i'm you sort of get a bit nervous sometimes and you walk in and a lot of the time they're pretty calm i've only been terrified once and hopefully that's an outlier <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good point you make and about how you, you try and make this inviting experience so that they can open up and give you more opportunities to diagnose them correctly and read them better which is great to hear now you mentioned the treadmill before and that's the, i guess the most common type of solution that we can think of when we think of physiotherapy for cats so can you talk us through the treadmill as well as what other options there are available for um, rehabilitating your cat or dog 
Yeah, so the treadmill I was referring to earlier, it's more of a, a diagnostic tool. It, it looks like a normal treadmill that you might run on, but we've taken all the sides and the front off. It's got a pressure plate underneath the whole treadmill belt that's got about fifteen or 20,000 sensors in it. So if you've ever been to one of those shoe shops and they get you to stand on that plate and it shows you the bright coloured sort of 3D print of your foot, we've got that bit for animals and it works in real time. So we set up a camera. We get them to walk on the treadmill and it shows how much pressure they put through each pool, how big each step is, where the center of gravity moves, and it tracks it over about a 30-second clip. And that way, it's not a diagnosis machine, but it helps put a spotlight on what area of the animal we need to look at a lot more. That treadmill can be used for exercise because you can just get an animal to walk on it to break a sweat or lose weight or whatever you need to do. But a lot of what we do in the clinics more about if they just need to exercise, we'll tell people what exercise they can do at home and show them how to do it. We can give them the right rehab equipment and tools and information and prescriptions for how often and how long. But there's not many that come in just to walk on a treadmill. Um, this is much more of a complicated bit of technology. It, it creates thousands of data points and it gives us a really good way to objectively measure how an animal is when it comes in. And after we've gone through whatever interventions we're going to use, we'll keep getting them to walk on there and retest it and compare it to the first time. So you'll often see, you know, one foot's got 25% less weight on it and you go through a whole lot of laser therapy sessions or water treadmill sessions and they'll start putting more weight on that foot. Their step lengths will become symmetrical left or right or front to back or wherever the, um, the imbalance is. It's a really unique way that you can put objective data points to something that is usually pretty confusing. Like if you say, oh, my cat's lame, doesn't mean anything it means it's walking funny but it doesn't show you where or how or by how much and this is a really good way to create some numbers around that so you can measure improvement so that's the main thing that we use that treadmill for that's really interesting i have to ask what if you well this is mainly i'm asking this question because i see so many photos uh, videos on social media of animals just flopping down on the treadmill and refusing to walk on the treadmill how do you <laughs> entice a cat or a dog to walk on a treadmill there's a range of ways that we try and do it. It's all very much positive reinforcement treats with small animals like the small dogs and cats. You can even just stand over the treadmill and kind of support them on their tummy, under their tummy. And a lot of the times they'll kind of go, they'll just drag their feet for a while and they'll just look at you like, I'm not going to do this. And sometimes you grab their feet and show them how to walk and you walk for them and then they're like, oh, actually, this isn't too bad. And then almost every animal, the penny just drops. They're like, oh, I get it. And they just walk. It's, it's amazing. They go from this very confusing foreign piece of equipment to within probably five or 10 minutes for most animals, I'll just walk on it. You could leave the room and I'll just sit there just chugging along. There's a bit of technique with getting the speed right, making sure you've got no distractions in the room and all that kind of thing. But with the dogs, it's a lot about treats and food. With the cats, it's about showing them it's kind of safe and it's not weird and they don't need to run away. And it's very quiet, which is pretty fortunate too. That's so interesting. Um, so we go, we take our cats for walks quite a bit and um, Lumos, the boy, is quite notorious for getting really lazy. So maybe that's a technique we need to try when we're walking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. So I noticed that um, a treatment method that you've got is the class floor laser therapy. What is that and how does it work and what kind of injuries does it treat? That's a big question. Um, so to break it down a little bit, class four laser, there, there's a whole lot of different classes. It's a little bit of some confusing non-climatria. I think it goes class one, then 1A, then B3 or something crazy like that. But either way, Class 4 is the most powerful laser. Um, they can all treat the same things, but the more powerful it is, the less time you have to use it for. So an intervention 
with laser is kind of measuring how many joules of energy it inputs into the animal that you're using it on. So the more powerful, the more power it puts out more quickly. So a class four laser can do a three minute treatment that can be as effective as a 30 minute treatment with a class one laser. A little bit of physics, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, you're talking to someone who did it. Well, Daniel did a physics major at school, so. Oh, good. Yeah, he's. you're probably really interested. <laughs> so then what kind of injuries do you treat with the laser then? You can treat a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of different stuff. Depending on the wavelength that you use, the amount of time that you use the laser for, whether the laser flashes on or off or whether it's continuous, it basically uses light photons and waves to stimulate different types of cells to either do their job more or do their job less. So with an acute injury where there's pain, redness, swelling, heat, we'll put the settings onto a particular set of specifications and that will help treat pain and inflammation. For a chronic condition like an arthritic joint or wrist or elbow that you might have had for a couple of years, it just uses a different set of specifications. It even works for wound healing. So if you've got burns or stitches where you've had a post-operative site it works really well for healing that as well it all just depends on the settings that get plugged into it okay and so switching gears a little bit we saw on your instagram that 54 percent of the of dogs have their torn cruciate surgically repaired will then tear the opposite cruciate within an average of 947 days it's probably because you know if we had to hazard a guess they're favoring that non-injured leg and then that gets injured and you overuse it is there anything to make sure that you know an injured cat doesn't injure their non-injured leg or other side yeah with with dogs and cats cruciate injuries are a very different set of circumstances um just to because you were talking about the dogs for them it's basically a degenerative process and it slowly happens over time most people think of a cruciate injury like oh i saw a video of a footy player whose knee bent the wrong way and they went from having a perfect cruciate to a broken one and it happened in a split second that's actually rarely the case. Just asking, a cruciate, is that in the knee or the ankle? Yeah, it's in the knee. Um, it's In an animal, it's called the CCL, which is the cranial cruciate ligament. In the humans, they call it the ACL, which is the anterior cruciate ligament. But I think cruciate is a ligament, uh, ligament, Latin for cross, because there's an anterior and a posterior, and they cross over and they create a cross. So it's always the one that goes from the back at the top to the front at the bottom of the knee. That's the one that almost always gets injured, and it stops your shin bone sliding forwards. So yeah, people think that, those ligament injuries always happen because you went from having a perfect one to an injured one from a big bit of trauma. But what happens most of the time is that they slowly thin and they slowly tear over a long period of time. They're kind of like holding a multi-stranded bit of rope over a candle. You'd have like tiny little bits of it go and it might take months, it might take years. But that's why a lot of people come in and they go, oh, I just did what I usually did with my pet and now it's lame. And I went and got some imaging done and it turns out it's torn its cruciate. How did that happen? And it's a tough thing, but you explain to them, that's not what made it happen. It's the five years of you know being overweight and not exercising that predisposed it to this. And then you over-exercised it and then it slowly tore over a matter of months. So it's a lot more complex than just it was good and then it broke. So to go to cats, um, I did do some research, but it's a bit more vague with cats. <laughs> probably like everything about half cats will get it half of the time they don't even know what causes it if they weigh more than six kilos they're at a much higher risk um and if they're over eight years old it's a much higher risk as well but that's about as specific as they could find cats do do a lot more high risk um jumping than dogs jumping up on things jumping down on things jumping onto things that you didn't think they'd even think that they could jump onto it's, <laughs> i find them pretty amazing um and I think it's because of the unexpected landings 
that if a cat's a bit overweight or if it's a bit old, then you become at a higher risk of a traumatic injury. But even doing those big jumps with a slowly degenerating one, at some point, it might just go, even though they're doing the same thing they've done for years beforehand. Does that answer the question? I'm not sure if I went yeah, off on a tangent. It, it does. Like, it explains why, like, how how it could happen. But then, so, like, I suppose the main risk factors are, like, having a pet that might be overweight, a cat that's getting a bit older. But I, in my head, I'm, like, kind of trying to think of how we could prevent that. And it's quite hard because cats, if they want to get up to that top in our case, uh, Lumos loves climbing, jumping on top of the laundry, the dryer in the laundry, which no one can even mm. get to. And it's about two meters high, two and a half yeah. meters high. Yeah. And I can't imagine how, because we don't want him to jump up there because it's quite hard to get down, but we can't find a way to stop him from getting up there. So I can imagine that's quite a struggle going like for people, even if they know that their cat is at risk of doing these kind of injuries. Yeah. And look, I'm sure your cat, thoroughly enjoys jumping up there and being up there and you kind of can't really stop them from doing everything that might get them to hurt themselves because then they're not going to enjoy their life either and that's probably just as bad one of the ways that human athletes dog athletes and presumably cat athletes prevent normal activities becoming injuries is by staying fit staying healthy staying active animals are pretty good at self-regulating it particularly cats are always doing stretching when you stretch your body it well if you think about bodies they're very complex input output systems we've kind of got a basic recipe in our dna of what our body should do like i'm pretty short all the stretching in the world's not going to fix that <laughs> but if i go out in the sun i'll get a tan if i go and lift heavy weights i'll get big muscle if i eat too much mcdonald's i'll get fat if I stretch a lot, my body will become stretchy. It'll become more limber and more flexible. If I want to have good muscle tone and muscle bulk throughout later in life, you have to be very deliberate about exercise. So one of the hard lines to walk is how much do you exercise an aging pet before that exercise becomes an injury? But if you do nothing, how much do you let them decondition before they get an injury? So it's a really difficult gray area to exist in. But fundamentally, no animal's meant to sit around and do nothing all day. <laughs> so one of the one of the ideas that dawned on me is because my my dad's getting on in years and you know you can see him getting a bit shorter and a bit scrawnier and it, it dawned on me that no one accidentally gets healthy and fit as they get older like it has to be planned and it has to be deliberate and it's the same with your pets you know if you've got an eight-year-old cat that's at risk of a cruciate injury and it's overweight and it sits on the couch all day and then it wants to jump up on top of the laundry washing machine whatever it was that's that's going to be a problem but if you've got a cat that's a good weight that you exercise and it can move around comfortably it's probably at a lower risk of hurting itself from jumping out there so to, i guess the um the dog point answer is keep them active <laughs> keep going cat exploring i suppose that keeps yeah, them active absolutely. as well and there's and there's so many ways that you can give exercise to your cat indoors as well so we're going to be releasing this will be released in december which means it's going to be very cold and winter for a lot of our um, listeners in the northern hemisphere but you can do things like use wand toys to get them to jump use a laser to get them to jump a little bit more one thing that lumos loves is that he loves me chasing him around the apartment and that because I, I don't know why he won't run other times but he loves it when we chase him around the apartment so that's just one way to get him active and then to be honest me as well <laughs> yeah well. But there are a few options out there so we found it really interesting to learn about post-surgery rehab can you take us through what that involves yeah so to break down the phrase post-surgery rehab the surgery almost always needs to be orthopedic so something that does a joint 
muscle, bone, ligament, tendon. When you tear a muscle or you have to have any of those interventions done, whether you get a joint replacement, there will be a period where you have to do nothing. You've got to sit in a cage, take anti-inflammatories and painkillers, try not to lose your mind so that ligament fibers can heal together and stitch together. Because if you use them too much too soon, it re-tears and you go back to square one. One of the side effects from cage rests is muscle wasting, loss of bone density, and loss of ligament and tendon flexibility and elasticity. So if you go and sit in a cage for a couple of weeks and then you get out and try and go back to what you were doing before, you'll often wind up with a different injury because your body's going to be moving very differently. So the idea of post-op rehab is to get you back to pre-injury status as quickly as possible in a really predictable, safe, low-risk environment so that you have a higher quality of life. It's um, in the human world, a surgeon won't touch you with for an orthopedic surgery unless you agree to do rehab afterwards because they know that the post-operative outcomes are multiples, multiples better if you're doing exercise therapy as well. It's something that hasn't really been common in the animal world, at least where I'm from, at all, which is why we started our practice because we'd see so many animals limping and hobbling around and blowing one knee and blowing the other one and getting arthritis and having muscle wasting and just losing quality of life is such simple things that we can you know give owners to do and yeah get them back to pre-injury status after their operation you know it's like when you put it that way it's so obvious right but i think it's just we've spent so long where we haven't done it so it's um really interesting but i also read about prehab what is that yeah so that in the human world as well it's a much newer idea so that's preparing your body to go into surgery i actually read a really good quote on it somewhere but i'm just going to give me a look up here we go Prehabilitation is moving towards optimizing preoperative physical exercise, nutritional support, and stress and anxiety reduction so that you go into the surgery in a good place. So when you've come out of the cage rest and you've come off the painkillers, you're not at kind of like baseline zero. You've already got a little bit of a leg up. A lot of athletes in the human world do this because they know that at some point they'll have to get their shoulder done like a tennis player or an arthroscope on a knee for a football player or something like that. So they can predict when their surgery is coming up so they can prepare for it really well. It's a bit of a shame that a lot of orthopedic surgeries in animals are reluctant spends, like people don't really want it to happen, and they can't see it coming because people don't really know how to read the signs of pain, lameness, or those changes in behavior. So prehab is something that we're going to try and get vets to do over here. Well, get owners to do, but educate vets on that the option does exist. But it's a lot harder to do prehab in the animal world. One of the... um. The interesting things with uh, the vet profession, at least in Australia, is they are the hospital. They're every single department in the hospital, their emergency, their post-op care. They, they have to do everything, and it's one person. And in the human world, they've chopped up medicine into so many subspecialties because there's so much stuff to know and so much stuff to do that no one person can do it. So when you say before that it's so obvious that post-op rehab is a good idea, um, it, it totally is. And it's not negligence on the vet's behalf. It's because they're dealing with emergency medicine and they do that fantastically well. And they save lives. They're amazing. But there's only so much stuff you can fit in your brain. There's only so many rooms you can have in your practice to fit out to do rehab. And it's probably easier to carve that bit off and farm it out to people like us. And that's what, we, um, that's what we're experts in. That's kind of the only thing we do. We don't do anything that breaks the skin, anything with blood, anything that goes inside. That's a vet's job. <laughs> we don't tread on any of those toes and we don't want to. So it's it's been tricky educating vets into kind of carving off a little bit of what they might be able to do 
so that they can focus on doing what they do really well and we can focus on doing what we do really well and everyone win. Yeah, I understand that. I, I just had a thought, right? So you were just talking about how athletes do some preparation for prehab, uh, do prehab so that in the in the case where they haven't where they need a surgery they're more prepared but say for example um with our cats is there anything that we can do besides just making sure that they're exercising regularly that makes sure that they're like i suppose a type of prehab but it's just including it in our everyday lives so for example I know that I sometimes have some hip inju- hip issues, so I just make sure that I stretch that out and that's something that I'm a bit more conscious of. So is there anything that we can do with our cats in that kind of space that's preventative? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back once again to re- learning how to read your animal really well. In a simple, straightforward world, we'd all be born completely symmetrical and we'd all be born with equal bodies with good muscle mass and bone density. But fundamentally, I got the genetic short straw of having a leg that's slightly shorter than the other. So I've got a little bit of a curve in my spine. And I know if something plays up, that's the first place that it starts to happen. And because I'm aware of my internal environment, when I start to feel that, I'm like, okay, here's the things I need to do to make sure this doesn't become a big problem. The whole reason I got into chiropractic personally is because I wound up with this terrible lower back pain when I was 17 or 16. It ran all the way down the back of my leg. It was kind of like sciatica, kind of like disc pain. I put up with it for months. A chiropractor adjusted my back a few times and I was like, my goodness, I'm doing this with my life because it changed my life. I thought I was going to be stuck on a couch and not able to walk. So the little bit of back pain I get is kind of the canary in the coal mine. So knowing your animal, knowing how they move and going, oh, that looks a little bit funny or that's a bit unusual and kind of like lifting up its legs or having a bit of a poke and a prod around and going, oh, they're a bit sore there. Maybe that's the start of a, maybe they've got elbow dysplasia. Maybe they've got, you know, a luxating patella. Maybe their cruciate's a bit weak. Maybe their hips are a bit funny. But it'll take a few vet visits to figure out what their little weak spot is or where it is. And once you know what it is, you can kind of manage it a whole lot better. There's no guesswork in it. Even if you put every human in the world through this, you know, perfect exercise routine, for some people, it'll be way too much. For some people, it wouldn't be enough. For some people, it'll cause problems. And it's the same with cats. So you can't just say, you know, get them to do a whole lot of sit to stands to work on their glutes and hammies to stabilize their knees, because for some cats, that might cause other problems. So there is definitely stuff to do. As to specifically what that stuff is, it's um, a case-by-case basis. Yeah, so every case is different. It makes sense and because every pet is different and every pet's sort of injuries or conditions are different that you can't just apply one-size-fits-all. And that's similar to, I suppose, humans. Like, you know, like, you know, we can all do some preventative stuff when we're exercising to make sure that we don't over-exercise or put too much pressure on certain areas such as our back or our, our arms or our hamstrings or quads or whatever and so, but not everyone's got the same sort of issues. So you can't all just do the same stretch and release and expect it to work the same as everyone. So that makes a lot of sense when you when you put it that way and just everything's sort of just clicking together. That a lot of this is very similar to the human treatment and human solutions, but transferring that to the pet world and sort of adapting it to work that way. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things that's become very obvious to us is the same injury processes happen and the same healing processes happen. We're all mammals; they happen a bit quicker in animals, fortunately, but 
fundamentally, when you get a ligament injury, it takes a certain amount of time and it takes a certain environment to heal. And depending on where the ligament is, what sort of animal got it and how torn it is or how injured it is, it creates a kind of a need for a customized program of what exercises to do, how often, what to look for. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is set up a bit of a telemedicine page on our website where people who can't get into the clinic, we haven't got it up and running yet, but people who can't get in would be able to get us on Skype or Zoom or something. We can get them to fill in a proper history and we can watch some videos of them, get the owner to do a few tests and hopefully come up with something that will be able to help because every animal has something funny going on with them out there and there's always something you can do to help but there's unfortunately no good blanket rules out there i love that because like there's a lot you can do and so it's great that um, you know you're trying to get out there and help encourage people to give this a go and try and make it work for their pets so no, that's great to hear. Now, when we met you guys, you told us an amazing story about a cat who suffered a stroke. Do you mind telling us that story again and how you treated the cat and what was the end result? Yeah, sure. Um, so this beautiful cat, let's call him Blackie for the sake of being anonymous. He came into the clinic one day and his owner, who's a vet nurse, I think she might have met us at one of our trade show stall market things as well. But she came in and she was like, look, I know this is a little bit odd, but my cat has got a whole lot of things going on. And I just want to know if there's anything you can do to help him. He was 16, so he's he's pretty old. Um, apparently, and I still find this hard to believe, had his head run over by the car and is still alive. Had a big stroke, still alive. You know, turns out he actually does have nine lives. I hate to see what happens to the next seven. But he came in and he had a radial nerve palsy in his left forearm, so he couldn't use his paw. So what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to for his so a radial nerve palsy the bones that are like the long bones of your forearm is called your radius and the nerve that runs down the edge of that is called your radial nerve and that nerve controls the muscles in the paw so he had kind of a limp limp wrist and wouldn't weight bear on it so he'd walk around on three legs and you'd pick it up you could feel the muscles had wasted away a bit and it was just floppy you could feel pain like you've pinched it he'd respond but you basically had a useless left forearm and we thought that was from the stroke and it you know makes a lot of sense so we went through did a history did an examination on him and we basically used a lot of laser therapy on some settings that are meant to promote nerve healing we did a lot of joint mobilizations and it's not the high speed high power cracking crunching sort of stuff but like really gentle mobilizations because you can't get a cat to do something it doesn't want to do i think we're all pretty aware of that (laughs) (laughs) so you develop rapport and you can like rub its neck and we were rotating its neck side to side getting it to move up and down getting it to follow treats and even even a skull is made up of i think it's about 13 or 14 bones but there's seven major bones each of those bones have joints called sutures that join the bones together um sutures kind of look like a little wiggly line you might have seen them on any other skull on a horror movie or something but they should have a little bit of moving in them. And his head particularly felt like it was made out of a single piece of granite. So going through and doing like really gentle release techniques through the sutures on his skull, relaxing the muscles in his jaw, his face and his head and his neck. We did it once and the girl came back in and I was like, have you noticed any difference? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, well, look, his neck's a bit stiff. He's got some tight muscles. Let's keep going. And we persisted with it. We did a lot of laser therapy and we did a lot of the hands-on therapy. And probably after three or four sessions, she came in and she's like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe it. He did the cat camel stretch, you know, like where they arch their back up in the air and do that sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, the cats do that. And she's like, no, 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 he hasn't done that in years. So progressively we were kind of, I guess, reteaching Blackie how to move his back in a certain way that maybe he was uncomfortable with, maybe he forgot how to do, maybe he had tight muscles that were stopping it, maybe he had 
sort of locked up joints that were restricting that from happening. And he even got to, it wasn't perfect, his front left paw, um, but the nerves that come out of your neck all bundle together and control your arms. So I think what happened was as we were fixing his neck and relaxing all of those muscles, there might have been multiple points along that nerve where there was a little bit of pressure and that all built up. So by the time we got down to his paw, it wasn't really working. So by the time we were finished with Blackie, and I haven't seen him in, in months now, he was walking around on it. He was limping. He was a bit weak. He had less muscle in that arm. He's 16 years old, so it's really hard to build muscle at that point in your life. But you could tell he was far more comfortable. His body moved amazingly well. And we had all these kind of changes in behavior and key points that the owner had noticed had gone from normal to pathological that most of them had gone back to normal. So this cat was happy to come in. He would crawl out of his little bed onto my lap and we'd sit there and, you know, grab his head and wiggle it around and real life cool his jaw muscles and risk getting bitten. And he was so compliant and, you know, it was heartwarming. I used to look forward to seeing him because <laughs> it was amazing. And that's not to say that you get the same result every time. Maybe that was a complete outlier or maybe that had happened really regularly. But the thing is we don't know because people just aren't used to bringing their pets in for, you know, chiro, physio, osteo, rehab, all that sort of care. And there's so much that can be done. So it warms my heart. I really enjoyed seeing Blackie. He was beautiful. Grey cat, yellow eyes. I miss him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just incredible. I love that he was so, like, he was so into it because I have to admit, like, that would be my concern if we had to take a cat in is how do we get them calm enough to, and I know you said you have the calm rooms and the, like, you put a lot of effort into that side of things. Like, did you have to do any type of, like, positive reinforcement, like using treats or I suppose Blackie might not be fully into playing with toys but maybe treats or something like that? Yeah, he was a he was a treat cat. Um, the owner would bring in, it was something very smelly, but he loved it. So the first few times he needed that distraction, but after a while it was very much just give him one at the end because he's been a well-behaved, compliant cat and let me do what needed to be done. And it didn't. he didn't need any sort of distraction after probably the first visit or two. I think, you know, animals, you say they can't talk, but we just can't understand them. I, th- I think they're very good with instincts. I know my little dog, she she reads people. She knows what your intent is and she knows if you're walking to her in a way that means she's going to get a little smack on the bum because she's been done something silly or she knows if you're coming over for a cuddle. And I think Blackie and probably every other animal knows that we're here to help them. Like there's, we're not going to jab them with something that they don't want or cut something off their body they might like to use or anything like that. So I think they can read our intent. I don't know how much of a weirdo to sound like delving into that topic but they know they know no I completely agree I think was something that we keep talking about on the podcast and I know I try really hard to remember as well is that our animals read us really well so for example if we're nervous they're probably going to be nervous and if we're excited they're going to be excited so that's just something to remember one thing that you kind of just made me think about is so Wiley is a cat in our community Um, we spoke to her mums in season three and she had an accident she fell off a fridge and landed funny so she broke her leg and she went through some rehab and one thing that they used a lot is clicker training so using the target stick to get Wiley to move through like a I suppose, like an agility kind of setup that they had. Is that something that you guys use a lot as well? Um, we, I'm aware of the clicker. It's not something we use here. We've used a lot of treats, but it's something that I I click my fingers with Sunday to get her attention and get her to follow me and do that sort of thing. But it is really effective. We tend to use treats and yeah. leads. And with a lot of the, um, the training and 
sort of, you know, it's almost like an obstacle course, you could think of it, with some of the exercise things we set up for animals. We get the owner to walk through and do it, so the animal generally just follows them. So, yeah, it's, you know. Lots of different ways to go about getting a result, and the click is certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, one thing that really stood out to me with Wiley's story was that it had helped that they'd started doing that before she had an accident. So, yeah, and then they were able to just keep using that. It's something that I keep in mind because we use we do a lot of clicker training and target stick practice, and I'm just like that would just if the worst case scenario if something happened, we could always just use that if we need to. So, yeah, yeah. Just interesting. So we heard about Blackie's story, and I'm not sure if this is your answer here, but what's been the most memorable case that you've come across? The, for cats, it would definitely be Blackie. For dogs, the, there's so many, the, I don't know, they're all beautiful animals. They're also they're such heartwarming stories. There's a few that, you know, they've come to see us a bit too late, and it's not such a happy ending. And unfortunately, they're memorable for all the bad reasons. Um what about Sunday's story? I'm I've read about Sunday, so Sunday is your dog, I believe, and she's got yeah. a pretty amazing story. Well, she she does. She um she's missing her back left foot just below her hock, which is the equivalent of a human heel. Um, she was a rescue. I got her at about two months old, and at two days old, she had to have a cut foot off. Uh, sorry, her foot cut off by a vet. The story I was told was that I don't know if it's true or not that. Either way, she got volunteered to a vet clinic. Her foot was all injured beyond repair, so they cut it off. Um, and Reese and I, just who's my business partner, we just started our, the animal rehab clinic. And the lady messaged us on Instagram and said, hey, I've got this dog with three legs. Do you mind if I bring it in and you guys can, you know, tell me if there's anything I can do to help it? And we were like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Bring it in. Booked the time. Went through all the normal processes. One day this lady shows up with this adorable two-month-old Rottweiler puppy. And... I looked at her, I stood at the door and I was like, Reese, you're going to have to do this because I'm going to like adopt that dog. <laughs> um, and funnily enough, through the conversation, the lady was like, oh, actually, I need to, someone to rescue it because I don't think I'll be able to look after it, blah, blah, blah. So I did say it. First day I met her, I couldn't even like give her a pat because I was like, I'm going to burst into tears. <laughs> I was like, if I had pat her, I just won't be able to let go. And I moved out of my unit. I My parents were away on holidays and because I moved out of my unit with like zero notice and adopted the dog, they were away. So I went and moved into their house while they were gone and had a puppy. And I was like, okay, what the hell do I do now? So she's about a year and a half old now. So I've had a four. 14 months or something and we've been working with a guy in the US and coming up with a few ideas domestically to make 3D printed prosthetics for her to walk around on one of the um, there's a TV show called Better Homes and Gardens and they have a, a veterinary or an animal section so they did a few episodes on following her story from when she was a cute little puppy walking around with a limpy leg through to getting a few prosthetics that were miserable failures that were terrible and didn't work and getting some that got better and better and until she's got one that she's enjoyed walking around on and she does pretty well but I don't think her story's finished yet because it's got a little bit of an S bend in it where we're up to at the moment and at her surgical site she's actually got a few little bones of the foot that they left in there like a normal foot's got about 29 bones and some of them are pretty small so when she doesn't wear a prosthetic she walks around with her leg kind of like a stump or a post and I think because of that, it might have changed the shape of those bones a bit because she's only growing and developing. So your bones are more like cartilage at that point. But I think it's a bit sore. So I suspect that maybe when she's two and her bones stop growing, you might have to go under the knife and pull those out and then start the whole process again with the prosthetics. <laughs> but we, um, she doesn't need to walk a whole lot. Like 
she's a special case. The normal rules don't apply. We've got a water treadmill at work. So most of her exercise is swimming. I'll put her in the tank. And if you look at our socials and website, I'm sure she's on there somewhere. But she literally swims for 30 or 40 minutes at a time. She'll do like three to five minutes and have a little break and sit on a stool. So you've got a life jacket on and it's on a little bungee and we have the treadmill belt running so the water pushes against her. But she does most of the exercise like that. So she, um, yeah, it's an interesting story. She's a very sweet, enthusiastic, energetic dog. And, um, yeah, I'm interested to see what the next problem is she creates for us with these prosthetics that we're going to have to <laughs> to overcome. It's um, it's pretty cool because I can't remember where I saw it, but I saw the transition of all her different prosthetics that you've created for her and the thought process behind it, and that it's pretty cool. And what I will actually do is I'll include those videos from Better Homes and Gardens um, on in the show notes so that people can re- watch them too because yeah, they're quite great. interesting. And um, it's pretty cool because... Sunday met Dr. Harry and that was a vet that I grew up watching. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone's very impressed by him. He's a charismatic fellow. Knows his stuff. Definitely. Yeah. So Matt, we're coming up towards the end of our podcast. And at this point, what we do is we go through our fast four questions, which the first one is, what's one piece of a rehab or preventative advice you would give to cat owners to help improve the cat's quality of life? Mm, how fast do I have to be? Is it one word? <laughs> It's, nah, it's no, fast for us, but it's not fast for you. So. I don't know why we call them the fast four. We probably shouldn't relate, rename them. <laughs> take your time and yeah. Yeah, oh, we'll, go through We'll it. probably go through them faster than the rest of them. Well, I think there's a common list of injuries for each animal. Well, my expertise is in the orthopedic side of things. And for cats, some of the most common issues are wrists and elbows and knees and hips. And that's because of all the jumping. It's either the explosive takeoff or the hard landing. One of the other issues that a lot of animals have is having fluffy, soft, slippery paws on tiled surfaces. So when you're at home for the jumping, keep the weight down because extra weight on hard landings on hard surfaces means huge amount of impact on your joints. Impacting your joints over time leads to wear and tear. That will speed up the inevitable process of arthritis. The other thing is having high traction surfaces. I can't imagine a cat would ever want to wear them, but with dogs, you can get these little rubber boots you put on their paws. So if you've got floorboards and tiles at home, they don't slide all over the place. Because imagine if you or I were walking around with bare feet on an ice skating ring, you'd fall over, you'd be sliding all over the place, your muscles would get sore, you'd bang your knees. It wouldn't be great. So with cats, um, some of the solutions people have come up with is getting extra rugs or carpets for their hallways. You can go to the shops and get those cheap yoga mats and just sort of pack them to the floor in high traffic or key areas. Staying mobile, keeping exercising throughout the entirety of your life, super important. Maintains bone density, maintains ligament elasticity, and it maintains muscle mass. And they're all three predictors of quality of life and avoiding chronic disease. As soon as you get overweight, and you stop exercising, you can get all sorts of digestive and chronic conditions, diabetes, heart disease, digestive problems, all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally as well, once you stop exercising and you lose muscle mass and you lose bone density, you're more likely to get an orthopedic condition too. So I'd say the best things you can do to manage your cat, keep it active, keep its weight right, and traction on the surfaces. Probably one other thing, just mentally stimulating them properly. So many, like they're hunters, they're mini tigers. Like you watch them walk around the house, you know they're stalking you, but they're just frustrated because they're not big enough to kill you. Like they're amazing animals, but if they're bored, it's not good. Like 
bored people get depression, bored people act out and behave in all sorts of stupid ways and do stupid things, and animals are very similar. Sunday, my little dog's been sitting here chewing her lead in half <laughs> during this, which is something she probably shouldn't do, but she's probably a bit understimulated too. Um, so keeping your cats mentally exhausted is really important. Animals' bodies... It's hard to beat them with the endurance game physically because they're just built to go all day. But mentally, you know, we've probably got a bit of an edge on them, most of us. Although sometimes I wonder if my dog's a bit smarter than me. But keeping them mentally exhausted will tire out an animal even better than just trying to run it until it can't run anymore. Keeping them mentally stimulated and exhausted is really important because then they don't want to jump onto stupid things or bolt up and down a tiled hallway and slide around the corner sideways and bang into the walls. So super, super, super important and it's as far as I'm aware, very under-addressed. Like people will go, oh, I'll just bought this cool thing for my cat to play with, so I'll leave it with that in a closed room for two hours and hopefully it entertains it. But they're, they're not pets, they're family members. Like you've got to engage with them. They're important. Like treat it as if it's your child or a friend. Like you hang out with them. And I think that's as important as looking after their musculoskeletal health. Okay, well, that was a very unfast response to your fast four. I'm sorry, but... No, I think that's um, that's actually perfect. And what you say about the boredom, like the reason Lumos jumps on that dryer is when we haven't been doing his clicker training or I haven't taken him for a walk or I haven't given him the attention he needs. He's he's acting out. He's acting out. And he, he looks at us like, look at me, I'm up here because you didn't pay me enough attention. And like he's yeah. done it when I've been out all day and I've come home and he's like, I'm mad that you've been out all day. I'm going to jump on the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like. And as much as it frustrates me, that's exactly what's been happening. And it's so true in terms of what you're saying, like enriching our cats' lives is so important and yeah, it's quite a big part that's of it. Yeah. Yes, enrichment. Yeah. So what's been the most entertaining comment someone has said to you about animal rehab? Oh, my goodness. I think it depends what mood I'm in. Some people are like, why are you wasting your life? You're an idiot. Some people ask me if I'm serious. They think the whole thing's a big joke. Some people think it's amazing. But it's probably not super entertaining, but my mum has been very, very encouraging because it's, it's been a hard slog getting started. And I don't know, I guess it is entertaining because I think about it, but she's like, you know what, you're doing a good thing, keep going, I believe in you, blah, blah, blah. It's really nice. Maybe not the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you get like a full-on spectrum of responses. Like some people are just like, are you kidding me, you idiot? And other people are like, oh, my gosh, I want to do that. How do I do it? So you get a bit of everything. <laughs> Well, to put it into perspective, I started a cat exploring business, so I get a lot of those comments too. <laughs> okay, yeah, but you know. <laughs> I think you get the people who support you are the ones that you really appreciate and you come to appreciate them more and more and more when you have those bad times. So I think that's quite important to remember mm. is they're pretty amazing people to have in your lives. Yeah, I heard a great quote the other day and I think, I don't know who said it, so credit to whoever did, but don't take criticism off someone you wouldn't take advice from. And most of the people that have been critical, I'm like, you know what, I don't care what you have to say anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's because um, earlier this season, we'll also be doing a podcast episode on um, negotiation and conflict that cat explorers have when they're out and about. And I think that's a big thing that we spoke Mm. about was sometimes you just have to let it go. It's not even worth it. So yeah. There's a life lesson in there somewhere. Mm, that's it so what cats or dogs inspire you on social media um i'm not the most social media active person um but i i mean i've got a little thing for rot wheels because i have one and i don't even know the name of this dog or if it's got a facebook or social media handle but it's this beautiful rot wheel and he's got a fake front leg 
that's his bright pink, so I'm assuming it's a female one. It's pretty sexist of me. It might be a male one with a bright pink front leg. But I look at that and I'm like, yes, we this is this is achievable, you know. We can make a difference. So it's not one particular animal, but that one always comes up. And I like it. I always look at it. I always throw it a like. I'm sure it's been on about 50 different pages. <laughs> and obviously the cat yeah. explorer, you guys. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you hope to see in the future for animal rehabilitation? I would love it to become much more of a mainstream and frontline approach, the same way that physio is a normal part of managing human orthopedic medicine. I would love to be anim- for animal rehab to be seen the same way, not something that's a bit weird, not something that's a bit fringe, not something that's for people who are animal fanatics that want to go the extra mile. It's just for people who know their animal needs some orthopedic help and they go and do it. And that's not not an issue. I'd love um, vets to understand a bit more about it. And we're working hard to try and build bridges with at least our local ones and the ones that refer to us to continually educate them on what we do and that we're not some weird heretics running around doing voodoo magic, but we like literally doing evidence-based research and intervention, measuring pre and posts and um, working together. And I guess that's the other thing. I'd like it to see, I, I don't want there to be any divisiveness in it. I think we're in such a new place. There's no bad blood, but there's not a lot of good blood either, whatever the opposite of bad blood is. So I think it's we're in a very neutral territory and I'd, I'd like for it just to go the way of everyone working together and going, the ideal outcome is to have happy animals that have got a good quality of life and who cares which clinic they go to. Mm, that's a really in- in- um, important one and um, I'm going to totally butcher the quote, but it's from Harry Potter and they say something along the lines of we're better working together than divided because then we can get to that goal and it's all better for everyone. Yeah. So I like that, yeah. Yeah, more power to you. So, Matt, this has been an incredible chat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and agreeing when Asara, when she was super excited at the at the Dog Lovers show, came up to you and asked you all about what you were doing and asking all these crazy questions. You must have thought we were crazy. <laughs> so, oh, it's a Dog Lovers show. There's crazy people everywhere. It's fine. <laughs> I'm probably one of them. <laughs> Where can cat explorers find out more about you and the animal rehab clinic? Uh, probably our website and our socials, which are just animalrehabclinic.com.au. Um, clinic is spelled K-L-I-N-I-K. It's a bit German, but we did that so we could abbreviate the place to be ARK, A-R-K. So animalrehabclinic.com.au. And we're on Facebook, Instagram, and probably not Twitter, but maybe Twitter. I'm not sure. Awesome. So what I'll do is I'll put those links and details in our show notes, which you can find at catexplorer.co forward slash podcast. This is our last podcast episode for 2019. We'll be back with Season 5 in February. We might even do a mini episode before then, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. It's an understatement to say that 2019 has been a big year for Cat Explorer and the Cat Explorer podcast. It's hard to believe that this time last year, we were recording our first episodes and wondering if anyone would listen to the podcast. I wouldn't have believed that the Cat Explorer podcast would have been listened to more than 13,000 times, appeared in the top five of the Apple podcast charts for pets and animals all around the world, and most of all, connected us to so many wonderful people people. We'd like to take this moment to say thank you to each and every one of you for your support this year. Thank you for helping us show that there are cat explorers around the world and thank you for supporting us and everything we do. And a huge thank you to our amazing guests on the podcast. So many of you said yes to being on the podcast even before it was launched or even before it was getting the downloads it gets now. Thank you for taking a risk and agreeing to be on a podcast when a crazy woman, usually from the other side of the world, reached out to you online. We'd also like to say to everyone, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. We hope you, your 
the kiddies and your families have an amazing holiday season. That's it for today. And until next time, enjoy giving your kitty the world. 